Good morning. Welcome to South Bend City Church. I'm Jason, and we are honored that you are here. We really mean that. Um, yeah, we're grateful that you decided to be part of this gathering today. Uh, I want to let you know about a couple things going on in the life of our community before we turn the corner to the topic at hand today. Uh, first of all, a big important word about Sunday gathering schedule. So a little background first. <clears throat> when we made the move to three Sunday morning gatherings, we did so especially out of a concern for kids' ministry capacity. And if you've ever been at the 1015 serving in a kid's room, you know there's a lot of kids in this church. You're very prolific, the parents here at South City Church, making lots of babies. Um, so anyway, so we had that concern about kids' ministry capacity. That, however, uh, was before a couple things happened that were really helpful for us. First of all, uh, thanks to a lot of very generous people, both in the Christmas offering and just in our regular giving, we were able to expand our kids' ministry space, and then our kids' ministry team did a phenomenal job of actually making that space work. So for the last few weeks, we've had that second floor space in addition to all the ground floor kids space. That's a huge help for us. And then the other thing that happened was that on Easter week, we had 1,100 people here that week, which gave us a chance to stress test the capacity of our footprint with the added kids space and the new balcony seating that we've been using from time to time. And what we found out, frankly, is that we had pretty dramatically underestimated how many people, kids and adults, our space can, can flourish with for a gathering without it feeling too crammed for kids or adults. So uh, we've been crunching lots of numbers and we found out that when we used to only do two gatherings on a Sunday, uh, we roughly had 38% of our people attend at the nine and 62% attend at the 11 and we ran those percentages against our current numbers against the capacity that we found about, out about at Easter and we discovered we can totally do two gatherings on Sunday, guys. We don't need this three gathering stuff right now. So here's the deal. On Sunday, May 26th, which is Memorial Day weekend, we're kicking it back to 9 a.m. and 11 a.m. And that's not just for Memorial Day, but that's sort of going into the summer new gathering time. So check this out. You can still sleep in 11.45. You can still get your brunch on beforehand or whatever it is that you do between now and when you walk into this gathering. But uh, the 11 a.m. is there. And then it just means you get to get out to your summer day a little bit earlier. We think you might enjoy that. Uh, another note, if you're trying to figure out where you're going to land in the new rhythm, which is uh, we do have Thursdays at 7.30 p.m. too, and I feel like they're the best-kept secret at South End City Church. Uh, it's the same teaching and liturgy that happens on Sundays, but it happens a few days earlier on Thursday at 7.30. We'd love to invite you to that. Uh, but this, I think, is going to be a great way to create a more consistent experience for people, whether it's in the adult gathering or even especially in the kids' ministry space where we've heard from our teams that this is actually going to help them serve families better. So very excited about that. You guys down? All right, that was easy. Sweet. Cool. Awesome. Uh, one more note, which is what's happening right after today's gathering, and that's our intro to SBCC time together. This is our first time doing this, but if you've been here for a little bit and maybe you want to know more of the story behind our church, uh, the ways that we feel called to be who we are, a little about, about beliefs or leadership or finances or volunteering, that's happening right after this gathering today. We're going to start around 1 p.m. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, sandwiches have just been delivered, so you can grab a snack. And then uh, we'll be done by 2.30. I'm going to kind of take you into the story of the church, sort of pull back the curtain a little bit on who we are, some things that you may not have picked up from just a Sunday morning. And uh, we're also going to open it up for questions so that you can hear from me or other members of our team about things that you might have been wondering about for Southland City Church. So we would love to have you stick around. And like I said, we'll be out of here by about 2.30. That's coming up. All right, that's all the news. Uh, let's turn back to the topic at hand. A little reminder of where we're at on the calendar. Just two weeks ago was Easter. Resurrection Sunday, and we are here not just to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus, but to ask ourselves what it might mean for us, right? Because if the resurrection of Jesus is just about Jesus, 
Um, I mean, that's great, like good for Jesus, right? <laughs> but what does it have to say to us? What, is, what does it um, have to call out of us? What does it mean for us? And that's what we've been talking about. Last week we discovered uh, that in ancient days, in what is modern day Turkey, that there was in fact, I'm just making sure nobody's having to stare at a stand over here. Um, in what is modern day Turkey, there was a small-ish city, and this small-ish city had known some economic prosperity a few decades earlier, thanks to its industry. But the time that we're talking about in this city it was experiencing a few decades of economic decline. And in this smallish city, they experienced a climate not unlike our own. We hear that they had grim winters and lovely springs. And in this smallish city with an industrial past and grim winters and lovely springs, there was a scrappy startup church. And the scrappy startup church was trying to understand what resurrection meant for them. And we were thinking, that sounds like a pretty good setup for South and City Church. So let's see if we can learn uh, from this church. And the good news is we have a letter that's written to that church, a word given to them, sort of an apostolic word about what the Jesus movement means for them. And so that's what we're looking at. The city is Colossae, or Colossae, and the letter is Colossians. We started last week, and I, I just want to review a little bit of what we did last week because you might not have been here, and because it was maybe a little bit dense. So we're going to lay that groundwork again really briefly, and then we're going to press further into the text. Uh, Colossians is a letter written because there's a concern about something going on at the church. There's a, a threat to the church. There's um, something that might corrupt or turn the church in the wrong direction. And it seems to have something to do with the teaching or the message that the church is hearing. So the letter is written to correct that, right? And we hear in the letter that whatever this, this bad teaching is, it's deceptive. It's described as a hollow, deceptive philosophy. It's excuse me, described as worldly. And we, we sort of started there and, and we asked ourselves, like, when you've heard Christians warn you or other Christians about the possibility that you're being deceived or the possibility that you're being drawn into something worldly, we asked, we opened the floor, like, what, what kinds of things, what kinds of beliefs and behaviors have you been warned about or have you seen Christians warning other Christians about? Now, slight confession. On Thursday night, when we first did that, there was a little bit of it, which was Pastor Jay didn't have a sermon all the way wrapped up, and he thought he'd just kick it to the crowd and let them do the work for a little bit. <clears throat> so Thursday night, I thought, that's great. Let's sort of crowdsource this for a few minutes before we get back to the sermon. But then what happened when I asked the Thursday night crowd, what kind of beliefs and behaviors have you been warned about by Christians who are concerned that you're being deceived or that you're being worldly? The kind of things that were shared, it just, it, 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 it felt like it was the center of gravity in our time together that night, and then we brought it to Sunday too. And I was struck by how much I related to everything I heard and how, how so many people have, you, have, have had these words used against them or seen them used against other people, that you're being deceptive or deceived or, or worldly, right? So, I mean, I heard a bunch of stuff, but I heard um, things like maybe you left the church or the theological environment that you grew up in, and you relocated to a different church or theological environment, and maybe the people from the first environment are concerned that you're being deceived now or that you've moved into a more worldly environment. I heard about, um, depending on who you date, like who you, who you go with, right? Like, is that a sign that like, you're being deceived or you're being dragged into worldliness? The kinds of entertainment that people consume. Um, I heard somebody say that he's often heard that things like social justice are being criticized because that's worldly and the church isn't supposed to be concerned about those kinds of things. And on and on and on and on, lots of stuff. Um, serious stuff, kind of lighthearted stuff, but a lot came out of that gathering. And then we asked the question, is that what Colossians is talking about when it describes deception and hollow philosophy and worldliness? And to sort of answer that question, we looked at some clues in the text 
And then we also um, brought some summaries in from some scholars, right? And so I mentioned that a scholar named Scott McKnight has sort of brought together all the best theories right now on what's going on for this church that the writer's concerned about, right? And you might remember this, there was four basic possibilities for what kind of heresy or bad teaching is corrupting the church. One of them was the Judaizers, one of them was the Dualizers, one of them was the Gnostics, and one of them was the Ascetics. So remember, the Judaizers are the people who are trying to drag the Christian movement back to its Jewish roots. And they're telling the Christians, you still need to uh, obey the restrictions, the regulations of the Torah, and sort of become Jewish in all of your behaviors and rituals, and then you can be part of the people of God. If I stood up here on this stage today and said to all the adult men, sorry, fellows, but you gotta be circumcised to be part of the people of God, that would make me a Judaizer because that's from the Torah, the, the Jewish law, right? Uh, the Judaizers. Then there's the dualizers. That's a word I made up. Uh, but those who are preaching dualism, that's people who are saying that God and spirit are good and they're sort of of one realm. And then bodies and flesh and blood matter, right? Like earth. That's of another realm. And God and spirit is good and flesh and blood and bodies are bad. And the two really don't meet. The two don't connect. They don't overlap. And the, the one, the God stuff, the spirit stuff, is sort of offended or not interested in the, the body stuff, the material stuff, right? And then you have the Gnostics. And the Gnostics are basically a more sophisticated system of the dualists. And then you have the ascetics. And the ascetics, in their own way, are saying something similar. They're saying that to have a body to taste and touch and smell and see and hear, to enjoy the things that we enjoy in our bodies, that's kind of suspicious. And so the least pleasure you can have the best off you're gonna be, that the more you abstain from, the holier you are. That's sort of a quick glance at the ascetics. Now remember, we said whether it's the Judaizers or the dualizers or the Gnostics or the ascetics, whatever is going on there, there seems to be a thread through all of that. There's a common thing in all of those bad ideas and it's something like this. The idea that you've gotta jump through some hoops to get to God because God doesn't want anything to do with this flesh and blood material world. Whether it's the Judaizers who say you've got to jump through the hoops of Torah, or the dualizers who say that spirit is good and bodies are bad, or you can go on down the list. One way or another, they all seem to be saying in their own way, you've got to jump through some hoops to get to God because God doesn't really want anything to do with this flesh and blood material world. So far, that's just review. How are we doing? Right? So we look then uh, at the way that the letter warns about beliefs and behaviors that align with that idea. Because the writer of Colossians doesn't think that this is true. The writer of the Colossians is saying, no, 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 it's not that God wants nothing to do with this flesh and blood world. In fact, in Christ, the writer understands that something completely different has happened. So let's revisit chapter 2 and see where the writer says this. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. For in Christ... All the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. So the writer of this letter is saying, you've got some liars in your midst, and they're telling you that you've got to jump through some hoops to get to God, because God doesn't want anything to do with flesh and blood, material bodies. The writer says, that's not true. In Christ, God has chosen to live God's life in a body. In other words, if you hear people preaching and they say it's the gospel, but what you hear is the scarcity of God, it's not the gospel. I don't care what they call it. That when the gospel of Christ is preached, it celebrates the rampant availability of God because in Christ, the fullness of God has decided to live God's life in a body. 
in flesh and blood, in this material reality. So don't let those worldly liars convince you that God is scarce in this flesh and blood life that you are living. Listen to a gospel that tells you God is rampantly available in this flesh and blood life that you are living. That seems to be the big idea, the big concern in the book of Colossians. Today I want to see uh, what the writer does with that big idea, like how they leverage it. Because like, that's a beautiful big idea, right? And we can, we can like, celebrate it all day long, that the fullness of God has chosen to live in a body and that you've been brought to fullness, that God wants your life to be a venue for the life of God, your flesh and blood existence to be a place where God lives God's life. That's beautiful, but what are you going to do with it, right? So chapter 3 sort of turns the corner and begins to be a little bit directive. Like, in light of all that, here's, here's how you ought to move forward in your life. Today we want to look at that. We're going to do some more work today. You guys up for a little bit of work on the text? You guys are so tough and smart. I like it. Good. Cool. Let's look at the beginning of chapter 3. Since then you've been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Now remember, for this writer in this letter, Christ is... Is, is, the, is the sort of original ground zero location for God living God's life in a body. This can be tricky because when the Greek turns into English from a New Testament letter, we hear things like heaven and earthly, and it starts to go back toward dualism, but this letter is literally the opposite of that. This letter is not trying to separate bodies from God. This letter is celebrating the union of bodies in God, the life of God lived in bodies, but it's saying keep your eyes, set your sights, remember the reality of matter of flesh and blood being married to God in Christ. Set your sights on Christ, and your life is hidden in God. Now, I've got to be honest. When I read the text saying that our life is hidden with God, at first I'm like, why? Like, what, what are we hiding from? <laughs> Should we be scared of something? Like, why this little, like, cosmic game of hide-and-seek? Um, hiding doesn't quite capture the fullness of this word, though. In the Greek, uh, the word is crypto. You might think of uh, encryption or cryptography. You might think of cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin. You might think of a crypt where something is sort of held and kept safe. In fact, the the true sense, the full sense of the word is something uh, that is held and kept safe. So we're not hidden for the sake of hiding. We're hidden in God for the sake of our lives being kept safe in God, which makes sense, right? I mean, if the fullness of God has chosen to live life in a body, if this is about the union of God and material reality, If your life, in fact, is a venue for the life of God, if your life is somehow in God, well, like, what could make God unsafe? What could possibly threaten God? What could possibly hurt God? I mean, the answer is nothing, right? If that word has any meaning at all, it surely describes a reality that can't be threatened or diminished. It's God, right? And if your life is somehow bound up in God's life, if your life is somehow held within God's life, then somehow your life might also be actually enduringly safe. Now, I don't mean that your body can't be hurt. I don't mean that you can't be wounded in the world that we live in today. But there's something about you and your life in God that's just utterly uh, unassailable. It can't be threatened because it's held in God, and what could possibly make God unsafe? Nothing, of course. So we read about keeping our eyes on that reality of Christ, which is God choosing to live God's full life in a body, and know that it's not just about Jesus, it's also about you. And then we turn to even um, more concrete ideas about how we ought to move forward with that. 
Now, a little confession, guys. Um, sometimes when I'm reading the letters of the New Testament, like Galatians and Ephesians and Colossians, these kinds of letters, I have this uh, difficult experience where the beginning of the letter usually gets me really excited. There's often like really expansive theology in these letters, big, beautiful ideas. So I'll be reading through chapter one or chapter two, the fullness of deity residing in a body. Hallelujah, right? Like, uh, Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things are made and all things hold together. This is beautiful, right? Christ in you, the hope of glory. Beautiful. Another letter, uh, a writer writes about the expansive love of God that is so great that in its height and width and depth and length, you will never know the fullness of it. And I feel the same way that you feel when Zach sings. Right? Super inspired and moved and hopeful and joyful. I feel like my body, my brain, my heart, they're just expanding. And then I always have this moment in these letters where I turn a page and then I get to a paragraph and it feels like we went from big, beautiful, expansive, cosmic consciousness to something like, and don't break the rules. <laughs> don't say bad words. You know, like, like you went from like, soaring in the heavens of theology to, like, the announcements from the flight attendant. <laughs> Does it feel that way sometimes to you? I, I can, it can feel kind of petty or trite, um, pedantic, pedestrian. It can feel that way to me. Now, I don't think it actually is. Hang with me, okay? I don't think it is. But it can feel that way. Let me, let me show you what I mean. So this is the next verse in Colossians. After we've heard all this big Christ consciousness stuff, we then read this. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy, the word also means obscene or abusive, language from your lips. Do not lie to each other since you've taken off your old self with its practices. This is what's sometimes called a vice list, a list of bad things. Don't do those things. Don't be that way, right? Now, the first feeling can be a little bit like, oh, that just got to very, like a very kind of mind your rules kind of mentality. But of course, if you take a step back for a minute and you just acknowledge the whole basis of this letter is that your life is in God, that God is choosing to live God's life through bodies, through flesh and blood, well, then of course, it's probably the case that there are things on this list that are sort of incompatible with that life, that don't express that life that we have in God. That makes sense to me. But I also want to observe that, um, at least in my life, I have learned that I, I can read a text that says, get rid of sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed. I can read a text that says, get rid of anger and rage and malice and slander and filthy language. I can read a text that says, don't lie to each other. And I can try to convince myself not to be those things or do those things but it can be an uphill battle of the wills and I find myself failing again and again. Can I get an amen? Anybody ever been there? In fact, there's a huge difference between putting these things to death and pretending they're not there, right? And too often communities like this become places where people like me on stages like this yell at you and try to just convince you that it's bad to have those things. If I can just mix in a little bit of shame, a little bit of guilt, a little bit of fear, and a little bit of hope, maybe I can like change you or fix you somehow, but that just doesn't seem to work, am I right? In fact, we, we learn again and again that when you don't really kill these things, but you just push these things down, they're just going to come out sideways, right? In fact, prohibitive cultures, I think there's ample evidence that prohibitive cultures just breed a toxic relationship with the thing they prohibit. 
This is why, for example, there's some evidence to suggest that pornography usage is higher among pastors than among the general population. There's some evidence to suggest that alcoholism is higher in the Bible Belt than it is elsewhere because prohibitive cultures tend to breed a toxic relationship with the thing they prohibit. And if we just decide our job is to pretend that we have no sexual immorality or lust or evil desires or greed or anger or rage or malice or abusive language, if our job is just to pretend that we never lie, that doesn't seem to fix anything. It just makes us even sicker, right? So I'm all for the idea of a life where we've been done with these things, but it raises questions about how we get there. Like, how do you actually put these things to death? How do you root them out? Let's just leave that question on the table for a moment. Let's look at what else the text uh, says about the life that we're being called to. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you, and over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace. And be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Well, if that last list was ugly, this one's pretty beautiful, right? I mean, who wouldn't want to live a life of kindness and compassion, of gentleness, of love, of forgiveness, of peace? Like, who, who wouldn't want that to characterize their life? I think we all would. And yet, in the same way that I have felt often like I'm pushing a boulder uphill trying to kill those dark desires, trying to wear compassion and kindness can feel like you're just working against your deeper nature sometimes, right? It can feel like an uphill battle and it begs questions like, is this text just leaving you to your own will to work this out? Are you just being encouraged to try harder, work harder? Like, is my job just to yell at you until you like start acting with more kindness and compassion? Is that the way this is supposed to work? Or is it possible that there's a reason this text has been handed down for 2,000 years? Is it possible there's something so deeply insightful and powerful in the letter of the Colossians that the early church said, this is inspired by God. This is a word for us to hear throughout the generations. Is it possible there's something here that's more than just try harder, work harder, get a couple of big ideas in your head, pass a theology test, and then act differently? Is it possible there's something else going on? Well, I think so. And I actually think the clue is hidden in the verses that I omitted from you, that I hid from you. <laughs> so uh, in the middle of chapter three, between the vice list and the virtue list, there's a, another couple of sentences that I think are the key to the entire sort of central thinking of this letter and the kind of transformation that it envisions. And the text is uh, here in chapter 3, verses uh, 10 and 11, where we read this. You've put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Christ is all and is in all. Let's work this out for a moment. Now, Gentile and Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. These are important categories in the ancient world, especially for a good Jewish person. Like if Paul wrote this letter, 
Paul has had his encounter with Christ, but he's still been born and raised a Jew, and he's been taught to think of the world the way that a Jewish person thinks of the world. And it's, Jews aren't the only ones in the ancient world that have these kinds of categories. Plenty of different religions, ethnicities, tribes in the ancient world have lines of who is in and who's out, and maybe even more importantly, they have lines about where you can find God and where you can't. They have lines about among whom you can find God and among whom you can't. And these are clearly lines that a, a person coming from Paul's background, for example, would use to tell him or herself, I know where I can expect to find God and where I can't. And it seems that the experience of Jesus keeps blowing up those lines, keeps messing with them. So let's talk a little bit about Paul, whose name was originally Saul. Saul was a good Jewish leader in, uh, in the first century. And Saul discovers that this movement is cropping up called the way of Jesus, the movement of Jesus, or the church. And he sees it as a corruption of the Jewish people and, and the Jewish law and the Jewish way of being in the world. And he's, he's very, very clear in his mind that you can find God in some places and you should not expect to find God in others. So you can definitely find God in the Torah. Torah is the sacred text that God has given us so that we know how to live the way that God wants us to live. So you can find God among the words of the Torah. You can find God among the people who live by the Torah. But if you're Saul, you better believe you can't find God in the life of a Jewish rabbi who, who ends up hung on a cross, which is a sign that you've been cursed by God, which is the opposite of that body, that life being a venue for God. That's a sign of rejection by God and God's people. You better believe you can't find God among this transgressive group of insiders and outsiders, of top of the society and bottom of the society, all coming together in this mishmashed, eclectic, scrappy little thing called the church. You're not going to find God there. And then he's walking or on the road to Damascus one day, and there's a blinding light and a voice from heaven and surely only God speaks from heaven, and the voice from heaven says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And just like that, all of the lines that he had drawn in the world about where he can find God and where he can't just get obliterated. Can you feel the, the cognitive disruption of that moment? His whole life he's known, I find God in the Torah, I find God among the people who obey the Torah, and I, I'm rooting out this cancer which is invading the people who follow the Torah, this cancer called the church, this cancer called the Jesus people because they're breaking all the rules and including all the wrong people and living in a way so radically offensive to the way that I believe that I'm sure that you can't find God there. And he's been persecuting that community. And then on the road, the voice from, from God, from heaven says, why are you persecuting me? And just like that, his categories get blown up. And he can't stop writing after that things like this. As you're being renewed in knowledge of our Creator, you'll discover the lines between Gentile and Jew are nothing. The lines between circumcised and uncircumcised are nothing. The lines between barbarian or Scythian or slave or free are nothing. From what we know of Paul's life, he didn't enjoy uh, like time hanging out with Jesus during Jesus' ministry on earth. His first real encounter seems to be that encounter with the resurrected Christ who speaks to him from heaven on the road to Damascus. But what we do know from Paul is that after that moment of conversion, he then went and spent time with the Christians. And some of those Christians would have surely actually had time with Jesus when Jesus enacted his ministry on earth. And I picture Paul going to those Christians and asking them like, hey, this Jesus thing, like when you, when you were with Jesus, did it mess with some of your lines? And they'd be like, oh yeah, he, he does that. <laughs> Paul would be like, man, before this happened, I thought I knew where I can find God and where I cannot find God. And all of a sudden, I'm not sure because I feel like I'm seeing him everywhere, right? 
I mean, if God can be in a man hung on a cross, if God can be in this disruptive movement called the church, all the lines start getting blown up. And I picture them saying, you should have seen what happened in the synagogue one day. You think your lines are getting messed with? There was that day in the synagogue where he was handed the scroll from Isaiah and he read about the promised era when God would live out God's kingdom through an anointed one on planet earth. And he said, it's happening through me. And everybody got all excited because of course we did because he's hometown boy. He's one of us. The, the, the scripture says in that story in early Luke that Jesus reads the scroll about God arriving through an anointed person and bringing God's kingdom, and the whole crowd's on the edge of their seat wondering what he's going to say about it, and he says it's happening right now, right here, and they're thrilled. And then the next thing Jesus says is, but by the way, the miracles that you're going to ask for are only going to be like the miracles from of old when two different Hebrew prophets crossed lines to perform miracles for Gentiles. By the way, then they tried to kill him. True story. Then they try to kill him. Somebody else would have said, Paul, you should have seen it, man. You should have seen it when the centurion thing happened. I'm sure Paul's ears would kind of perk up. Centurions? Well, centurions are the Romans. They're the oppressor of God's people. If there's one place you're not going to find God, it would be in the life of the oppressor of God's people, right? And yet a centurion came to Jesus and said, hey, my servant needs healed. And Jesus not only healed his servant, Jesus went further and he affirmed the faith of the centurion. He said, I've not seen faith like this in all of Israel. He said, yeah, Paul, that's the thing that happens when you hang out with Jesus. You thought you knew where God is and where God isn't, and then he just messes with you, <laughs> right? Some of them were there when Jesus brought the children to the center of the gathering in a social construct where that would never happen. He said, you gotta be more like this. When any good upstanding person knew that you, you, you don't wanna be like that if you wanna be where God is. And he just kept blowing up their lines, and so it shouldn't surprise us that in this letter to the Colossians, we read about all those lines being obliterated, especially because, watch this, if the big idea is that God is so in love with flesh and blood life, that God has chosen to live God's life through flesh and blood bodies, we see it first in Christ, but then for all of us. If God is so in love with living God's life in flesh and blood bodies, well then you shouldn't be surprised that when you look at other people, you are looking at divine vessels of the sacred life. And this goes back to the viceless and the virtuous. Did you notice that everything on that viceless describes the ways that we war against one another? I mean, whether it's sexual immorality, which becomes abusive in relationships, or whether it's uh, greed or lust, which is not just fantasies in your head, but the ways that you decide to possess or take from another person. When we talk about lying, th these are ways that we war against one another, right? And did you notice the virtues? Compassion, kindness, gentleness, forgiveness, peace. These are ways that we move toward one another. And I think the insight here is you can will your, your way toward greater morality all you want, but that'll be nothing compared to what happens in your life when you start actually seeing the life of God in other people. And when you see the life of God in other people, you will run away from the things that you were doing against them, wounding them, and you might run toward the things that would honor them. Like, I don't know that the soul can war against God. I don't know that it can. So when you see God in the life of another person, you might discover kindness oozing out of you, <laughs> honor oozing out of you, forgiveness, the only rational response to another human being who is also a bearer of the sacred image. This is, uh, by the way, one of our community mantras. You might have heard this before. Around here as a prayer, we often say, everyone an icon. Yes, your life is a sacred gift in the world. Your life, the first word about it is that you are a bearer of the image of God. So stop doing those things that don't live up to that beautiful sacred identity. Yes, 
Also, though, every other human being you look at, an icon, a sacred image. Let me remind you of an illustration that we have for this mantra. Uh, of course, it's right over there on the wall, too. Uh, but here we have three people embracing one another. You see them with their arms wrapped around each other. And you see that their heads are bowed toward one another in honor. Right? I mean, that's a posture of honor when you bow your head toward one another. But of course, you notice that something else happens when they bow toward one another in honor, which is a sacred image is formed in their midst. In this case, it's a Trinitarian symbol, the three circles, which form that sort of ancient image of the Godhead, that when we move toward one another in honor, that sacred image is formed in our midst. And I think the, the big idea, if I could try to put most of this together, right, in Colossians, you've been taught, perhaps, that God is so afraid of this flesh and blood world that you've got to jump through hoops to get to him, but in Christ, we've learned it's the other way around. God loves this flesh and blood world so much that God has chosen to live God's life in flesh and blood bodies. It happened with Christ, and it's happening with you. And if God is living God's life in flesh and blood bodies, then you might discover that God is living God's life in somebody else's flesh and blood body. And when your soul recognizes the life of God in somebody else, you might move toward them in honor, not anger. You might move toward them in love, not strife. You might actually start putting to death the things that cause us to deceive one another, to hurt one another, and you might start living a life which makes sense of the fact that the life of God in you is reaching out to the life of God in them. And then we might have to wonder like how this kind of resurrection life gets willed on our own. It'll get called out of you rather than forced into you, right? I had a moment this week where I was reminded of the power and importance of this. So a local TV station uh, wanted to convene a little roundtable of faith leaders, specifically to talk about violence in sacred spaces. Because whether it's synagogues or churches or temples or mosques, we've had a lot of that in the news in the United States and around the world. And so local media reached out, and uh, we were really honored to be a part of that conversation, and they needed a place to do it, so we were really thrilled to host it uh, right here on, on the carpet, right here on the rug. And so it's like a bad joke, but uh, an imam, a priest, a rabbi, and two pastors walked in. <laughs> it's literally what happened, an imam, a priest, a rabbi, and two pastors. And um, we sat here on the rug, and we talked for a little bit uh, with the anchor and with the cameras about some of these concerns about violence in sacred spaces. And that was great, but I was sitting there the whole time uh, with uh, Imam Muhammad and Rabbi Michael and Father Glenn and Pastor Joan and, uh, am I forgetting, Rabbi, Imam, maybe that was all of them. Anyway, <laughs> I was sitting there with them on the rug, and I was thinking about whenever I'm around people, specifically the leaders, the teachers of these traditions, uh, I feel these conflicting energies. Because <laughs> part of me has been taught my whole life, they're the ones you're supposed to be most afraid of. They're the teachers of other religions. Don't you know they might deceive you? Don't you know how dangerous they are? So I, I, feel, I, I hear those background scripts running in my head still sometimes. And yet at the same time, I feel this other thing so dramatically, which is the more that I spend time with Jesus, the more compelled I am to see the life of God in every other kind of person. Even the imam and the rabbi and the priest and the pastor. Like I'm compelled to see and celebrate and, and move toward these people. That was Wednesday, then Thursday morning was the National Day of Prayer, and the United Religious Community convened a, a prayer breakfast at Century Center. And so I was there, and I had the privilege of offering a prayer sort of on behalf of the Christian tradition and on behalf of this church, and I was really, really grateful to do that. But uh, my little sort of time of prayer was sandwiched between uh, the Venerable Uling, a, a wonderful Buddhist sister in town. She's um, endearingly sweet and kind, and uh, uh, one of the uh, representatives from the mosque was praying right before me there. 
and I remember like sitting there at that breakfast too thinking like part of me has been taught to be afraid of these spaces and yet the more I spend time with Jesus the more like I feel compelled toward these spaces and these people and the more um, I give myself permission to see the sacred in my brothers and sisters from these traditions the more I find it's sort of natural to put to death the things that war against us and the more natural it is to move toward one another in compassion and kindness. Now, because I'm talking about seeing God in teachers of other faiths, I know some of you have like warning signs going off. You have like, like the, it's like a, the nuclear submarine, like, aruga, aruga. I know, like, oh no, what's he talking about? Where's the pastor going with this? Just hear me real clearly. Like, I'm not trying to relativize Jesus at all. I'm not. I'm not. That, that's not the issue for me here, okay? Um, my own understanding of Jesus is, is singular and unique in who he is and what he's done for us and for the world. It's just that the more I pay attention to him, the more compelled I feel to move toward every kind of neighbor, especially the ones that stand on the other side of some line that we have drawn in the world. And as I move toward them, I'm able to see like some lives in them that I, that I wanna honor, right? That I, wanna, um, that I want to love. And then I don't have to work so hard to kill the bad things and cultivate the good things. They just begin to grow. And I think that's what we're being called to in the letter to the Colossians. We want this resurrection life, don't we? We want enduring life. And um, I feel like growing up, I was often told that's what Jesus did for us. And then I just heard a bunch of sermons about not watching R-rated movies and, you know, not believing the wrong things, you know. And I often, like, wondered, wait, but where's that? I'm doing all of that. And it doesn't seem to be resurrecting anything, you know. And then I keep discovering that if I actually read the text, if I actually just let the text speak, because I work hard on the text, I read way too many commentaries on the text, but like, the more I work on it, the more I'm like, man, this letter is actually talking about God who is so in love with matter. It's God who's so in love with flesh and blood that this God has chosen to live God's life in flesh and blood so that if you think you see the life of God in flesh and blood, you shouldn't be surprised. You should say, duh, like, <laughs> I'm a Christian, that's what we do. That should be like the normal response. We are able to see the life of God in flesh and blood all around us. That's the word from Colossians today. Um, two ideas for what you could do with this. One would be simply to spend time in the text. I really mean that. I don't know that spiritual transformation happens the same way that like learning to play guitar happens. There's probably some overlap, but I could like stand up here and give you like three steps and um, a guitar for dummies book and we could all move on, right? I think there are some mysteries in our life with God, some things that require meditation, prayer, slow reading, time in the quiet, you know? So one thing I would recommend today is if you don't have one, grab a Bible, take it home, and just read Colossians. It's like four chapters. It's super simple. We're most of the way through it already, but like savor it. Let it speak to you. Let it, let it do whatever it wants to do in you over the next week. That's one idea. The other idea for what you could do with this is ask yourself, who or where are you least, um, who or where do you least believe that you could find the life of God? Among whom? In what places? And what if you moved toward those people in places asking God to help you find him? Maybe it's a tribe of people. Maybe it's um, people who act a certain way. Um, Maybe there's some line between you and them. What if you moved toward whoever that is and asked God to help you find God there? If you do that, I suspect kindness and compassion might begin to grow in you. And then you'll know this letter isn't just theoretical. It's the real deal. Uh, if you're able, will you stand to your feet?
I thought today I would uh, simply offer a prayer on our behalf before we go and before I share our benediction. Uh, so if you'd like to bow your head with me, I'll pray. God, I know in my life, um, there are a lot of days when more feels dead than alive. I've actually had one of those weeks. And though spring is here and it's beautiful, it can also feel like that when we look out upon the world. It can feel like there's more that's dead than alive and we are aching for resurrection. So God, I pray that you would help us to hear the word from Colossians, to hear it in our bones, in our bodies, in our souls, not just with our ears. I pray that you would teach us the way that you taught this writer, that in Christ, the fullness of God has chosen to live in bodily form because you were so in love with this material world that you wanted to live your life in flesh and blood in bodies. God, as we read that that's not just something that happened with Jesus, but it's something we are invited into as well. I pray that you would help us to surrender to that and celebrate it. And even as we discover that you are living your life in our own flesh and blood bodies, I pray that you would also open our eyes to the ways that you are living your life through other flesh and blood bodies that you would obliterate whatever lines that we have drawn about where we might find you and where we wouldn't. I pray as you heal our vision and help us honor one another, I pray that you would put to death within us the things that cause us to war against each other and that you would clothe us in kindness and compassion and forgiveness, that your peace would rule in our hearts and in our world and that we wouldn't have to wonder if it's theoretical, we would know that we have been raised with Christ too. So thank you for the resurrection of Jesus. I thank you for the word that brings that reality crashing into the year 2019. I thank you that you love this world so much that you have chosen to live your life in flesh and blood bodies. We pray these things through Christ. And we all said, amen. amen. Uh, may grace and peace be with you. Love you guys. See you next week.